0: We're gonna look at
1: kind of you know where things are with the virus. Uh I think from last time uh the the variants you know were there, but not you know quite as much in the news. So we're gonna to try to tackle that. Um there's some interesting aspects uh, about them that are are noteworthy. We're gonna uh talk a little bit about where we are in the vaccine process, um, you know, both here and in and, and Europe and uh and rest of the world. So that should be pretty interesting. Um, We're also going to try to talk a little bit about therapeutics uh, this time around. So, you know, kind of the question of, you know, is there anything out there that can be helpful in advance? Is there anything helpful that could potentially, uh, you know, mitigate some of the symptoms if I get COVID? So uh, those are, you know, those are just a couple of the topics uh, that we're going to be covering. And, uh, you know, same format. Uh, you know, we'll probably spend about half the time with the prepared remarks, and then we'll open it up, you know, for questions. And, you know, we've really appreciated the dialogue in the past. So, uh, as I say, keep those cards and letters, uh, you know, coming in. We're at least thinking about it.
2: Hey, Bill, I had a question. Are they
1: going to touch on uh, testing
2: uh, as being discussed about getting back on airlines and getting back to work?
1: We can certainly bring that up. We can certainly bring that up. I, I think it, it sort of speaks, you know, to the larger question of, you know, with the success of vaccinating, you know, a reasonable number of people now, sort of what are we going to do? Um, I don't want to necessarily steal my own thunder, but it's very interesting. You know, my my folks are in an assisted living uh, facility, and they and they just finished up their second shots for everybody, including staff. So it's a little, you know, it's a little uh, isolated bit of the world. Now what? You know, are they going to be free? Are yeah. they, you know, it's a big question. And obviously the extrapolation is, is pretty important as well. And how do you keep it up?
2: Um, there was an interesting interview with uh, the woman who's the CEO of Clear, which is what Delta uses to get, into, get through. And they were talking about are they going to be one of the answers to tracking for airlines and stuff, who's vaccinated, who's not, and the like. So it's going to be fascinating how that plays out. Yeah. Vaccine
1: passports.
3: Yeah. Papers. Papers. I just want to say about mentorship. Leslie and I have been talking about that. We had a good session yesterday, looping in Jonah, who kind of inspired me to bring the topic forward. And my sense is we need to – be integrated with the future of education.
0: You have Sarah here. Place
3: to her book. Well, she turned me on to Leslie in the first place, but um, I know that education is a primary interest for the entire 361 family. So, or you yes, know, for, for the majority. Yes, it is.
4: Yes, it is, and I actually um, am looking forward to meeting as a group because there are a lot of directions right now that we can go in with education. And I'm really, really interested in hearing where people wanna go. I mean, mentorship is huge, but I, I also know there's a lot going on. And it's also, um, I just wanna put out there that in with everything going on with COVID, it has become very political, <laughs> and I know we don't want to be political here, but the conversation about going back to school, teachers wanting to make sure it's safe, um, it's, it is is turning very political, but I think there's a lot of um, conversation to be had, so I want to know where people want to go.
3: My thought simply beyond COVID and beyond classroom is that I think that some some aspect of mentorship begins to um, subvert classroom-led education to the point that uh, the world is changing so fast. By the time it gets into the classroom, it's obsolete. That that notion, whether we agree with it or not.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a huge advocate for mentorship. I think that that's. So imperative. So I am right there with you, Mike. Thanks. You know that.
3: Well, I think if you're on the call, you're on the cutting edge. That's 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 what 361 what, is all about.
4: I'm always on the cutting edge.
1: Hey, I have thought of Sarah on education. If, if yeah. I were ki- if I were king and autocrat for a day, yep. they'd, be the first, they'd be the first people to get the vaccination. I think it's that. important. Tell me
4: about it. That I, more I, than- I don't. I don't
1: understand. I just don't yeah. understand.
4: More than ski patrol. Yeah,
1: <laughs> uh, it's just. Uh, it
4: just. How I. I, I, would,
1: I don't know why they haven't done
4: that. Yeah, there's. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure everybody who either has kids, has grandkids, or has teachers in the family, the news is. I mean, every day.
3: Well, um, I'm sure we're going to hear more about it on the call Thursday. But my understanding is. You can be vaccinated and still carry the virus and give it to somebody else, even though you won't be sick. Not, so, not, not that that makes a difference in what Tom said. It's just, it's just risk for the mill.
0: Could, could I just, on mentorship, it's, it's
3: really important to me because I'm the first to go to
0: college and uh, my family, and I, would just, I just wish I had a mentor that told me not to go to law school, but... Um, <laughs> You know, but mint, um, I think mentoring is also important on the philanthropic side,
4: because
0: yeah. yep. um, all and, and everything, right?
3: Like, we're all looking for mentors. Uh, yeah,
4: I think no matter what age you are. Yeah.
3: Well, so, the well, thing I, is with mentors, my dad always told me to get one, and I never asked him why. Maybe he wanted one. And then just this last two weeks, I realized I've had dozens of mentors. I just never realized it.
2: I thought last week's discussion was. Fascinating and uh it reminds you what makes a market, given the different perspectives that everyone brought to the conversation yeah. but Jonah's perspectives on how young people view the social and cultural aspects reminds me a lot of what it was like uh uh in the sixties and seventies uh, when I was uh a teenager and uh the social movement that uh and the social feelings that jonah's contemporaries have um Reminds me a lot of that period, uh, although I'm sure they're having a little less fun than they did back in the sixties and early seventies, um, particularly with the pandemic. But Mark asked me to listen to the video, uh, after the call. And, and after doing that, I thought the conversation was, uh, really fascinating with the interaction. I thought we deserved to, uh, to dig deeper into it, uh, as we're talking about the de- democratization of the markets and, uh, um, and I realized that, uh, Jim asked a question on the value of shorting and, uh, I gave a answer that I thought was okay, but I thought I'd bring in my partner, Nitin Suchetti, uh, to provide some insight into how hedge funds, uh, use shorting techniques and why it is a valuable tool <clears throat> when used appropriately. But before we go too deep into the discussion, I'm reminded of something Mohammed Alarian said, uh, last Thursday. Uh, when he was talking about the action in GameStop, and he was reminded of some early lessons he learned on Wall Street. The first one was, when you're on Wall Street, you have no friends in the market. And the second one was, there's always a weak hand, and if you not identify it, it's you, and it's too late to do much about it. And I think what happened to some of the hedge funds uh, that they were the weak hand, they didn't realize it until it was too late because their sizing was off. Their idea was probably the right, might have been the right idea, but Poorly sized, you end up with bad execution. So the the other message I would add on top of Mohammed Alarians is smart investors make mistakes, and some are big and lethal, and some are small and painful. Uh, the guys at Melvin are really smart people; they've been very good investors for a long time, but got caught with some bad exposures, and uh, I think it created a situation. And they're not alone. And I don't mean to pick on them at all. There were a lot of people involved in this, but a lot of people both on the uh, investment side and in the public, made a lot of money and lost a lot of money in what went on. And I think there are a lot of lessons that we can take from it. So I just want to remind people that we're in a period with massive transformations occurring all at once, and it is really creating a very unsettled environment, which um, we've had other periods like this in the markets, but it does remind you that when you have massive transformations going on, you end up with these uh, profound disruptions that McKenzie points out, and that creates um, both opportunities in the markets and also challenges in the markets. But I think what people, when they make comparisons to different time periods, such as the late 90s to today, it's very different uh, kind of dynamics at play. And you have these massive opportunities developing from these disruptions, but you also have some real people who are really struggling to get through this. So for us, we have to keep it in context of what's going on at the time that's creating this uncertainty and volatility that we've seen uh, in the market. So I just want to share with you a couple thoughts about how unique periods are. And uh, this is a quote I love from Ben Graham because it's it's uh, proven out over time, but as one of the great value investors in the 30s and 40s, he was actually citing the changes that occur from decade to decade in the world we live in and how you have to adjust your processes uh, to the changes in the mechanisms of climate. I think what Robinhood brought to light is there is a new uh, game in town. It's the retail investor is coming back, and they're coming back in ways that have social implications that are very different. Um, But the world's been changing considerably for some time, and I just saw some statistics that I think are uh, kind of fascinating. Um, and that when you think about the changes that have occurred, remember we had uh, bond guys in the bond market it was one of the great jobs in the early eighties was to be a bond salesman. And you got eliminated. That job was eliminated because of technology. So we continue to see the role of technology uh, play in the markets and we've all had to adapt to it. And wall street's been very good at it. We're sometimes a little late, but um Change is one of the constants that we always have on Wall Street, and we have to keep in mind. I'm sorry. When we go through these changes, um, it helps to keep some perspective. So, just to give you a little historical perspective, in the 70s, the uh, New York Stock Exchange had a market capitalization of about 600 billion dollars. Today, the market cap is over 30 trillion dollars for the NYSE. Back in the in the 60s, the average holding period for a stock. On the NYSE was 8.3 years. Uh, in the 70s, it dropped to 5.26 years, and now it's uh, being viewed as seconds, is how people are trading in the markets today with high frequency traders. Um, the average holding period could be 12 to uh, uh, 22 seconds for a lot of the high frequency guys. So we've had revolutions going on throughout the decades in the markets. We've come out of them, and we've been stronger as as an economy. And as you can see, I just gave you the NYSE number. The total stock market capitalization for the U.S. in 2018 was about $50 trillion, and we know it's gone up since then. So markets evolve, trading evolves, and the way investors have to approach it has to be adapted, too. I bring up the balance sheet of the United States, and this is from a great book by Brzezinski that was published in 2012. Uh, so written before, and you look at the liabilities and the assets of the U.S. And in our assets, the overall economic strength, one of the key elements to that is our capital market system and our ability to use the capital market systems to uh, raise capital and put investors in a much better spot and also put the economy in a better spot because we are uh, bringing in some, uh, dynamism by providing the funding vehicles necessary for all types of businesses. Sometimes it works better than others, but I also was, I was preparing for, for today's discussion. I looked at this and I said, these are problems we've had for decades and we'll have for decades more. And we're talking about, uh, the politics of when he was in the administration back in the Carter administration back to an advisor for Johnson. It gives you a sense of. You know, we haven't really moved past a lot of the problems, but our strengths remain quite, quite, uh, relevant too. Uh, there are new games in town with China becoming a much more dominant player, but, uh, we c- can't forget the strength of the U.S. balance sheet and what makes this country so great. I want to talk about the function of the capital market system though, because in the conversation last week, there was a lot of discussion about getting, sticking it to the man and, you know, this is the, the revenge of the retail investor and all that. We've had those revolutions before, and this one may be different. It may not be. But it's important to keep in mind why we have the capital markets and what the proper functioning <clears throat> allows for. It connects savers and investors in ways that allow us to uh, seek higher rates of return and seek appropriate risk-adjusted rates of return. It allows for capital formation. We need to get businesses started. It's one of the strengths of the U.S. is small businesses, and they need capital, and that's what the markets provide. It regulates security prices, which allows to avoid some of the problems we had in the last couple weeks uh, with this excessive volatility, but that may just be a blip that we're going to deal with, and regulators are going to come out at this. The lawsuits around this case are ready for class action suits prohibiting trading to happen versus the other side where there may be lawsuits uh, from the government about some of the providers, whether it's Robinhood or some of the others, were they giving the right information and are we positioning investors the right way? These are all questions that are gonna be answered. But when you think about the reasons for the capital markets and the functioning, it's not about the casino, it's about uh, providing a foundation for the economy to grow and help people both wealthy and poor get a better life, which is what the U.S. uh, has been about. Most of the developed world, most democracies are about. Having a strong capital market system is fundamental, and I think we're going to see some changes coming very quickly from the regulators in this area. So I just wanted to give that background, but I want to turn it over to to my partner, Nitin Sucheti, who uh, joined us back in August. He was a big hit for 5G. Uh, He's going to be working with Simon on the 5G breakout that we're doing again but Nitten wrote a book on, uh, shorting called Downside Protection, the process and tenants for short selling in all market environments. He's a manager of the Papyrus Fund for ARSA, uh, which is a long short TMT strategy available through the three to the 361 family. And, uh, we'll bring some real insights from practical from, uh, the side as Greg did last week and, uh, and others. So Nitten, I'll turn it over to you.
5: Okay, thanks, Stephen. Um, yeah, so just on the slide here, um, you know, we thought it would be helpful to just talk a little bit about, you know, the different types of equity shorts, uh, and just sort of what do they accomplish. So, you know, obviously, the most uh, well known and sort of what we hear the most in the, about in the media is really the fraud shorts. And so that are, you know, that's uh, Jim Chanos exposing Enron, as Stephen's mentioned before, Um it's some of the more recent uh you know exposing of a of, of Valiant and just some of the uh some of the, the the business models out there that aren't uh that regulators might not have realized um are fraudulent um so clearly again you see a lot of press and you see a lot of sort of public short sellers like Mighty waters um uh, come out and Citron come out uh and and look to expose those sorts of shorts um you know aside from that, and again, this just focuses on on equity shorts uh, you know you have pair trades, and so pair trades will effectively isolate um certain business factors um and so uh you know some of those business factors essentially being um yeah, you know, one business uh, and another business are very similar. One is slightly weaker than the other. One has a better product than the other. So what is the way that you isolate sort of that misvaluation and you isolate that factor um, that provides you with alpha without taking any real market risk? And so a lot of large, um, you know, a lot of large uh, investment funds that run market neutral exposure, you know, the SACs, Millennium, Citadels of the World, really do a lot of pair trading um and they sort of lever up those pair trades too uh in order to kind of get some get some extra um, you know alpha out of uh the 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 factor that they're that they're looking to exploit um you know another type of uh, 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 of way shorts are um, shorts are uh you know, express for share class ARBs. so you know you often have uh two share classes one might be a super voting share class um, one might be in one country versus another, and sometimes you know you have a lot of situations where companies are looking to collapse a share class because uh you know it, it's not efficient to necessarily have two or if there's a large uh, delta between one share class and the other, the company will sort of step in and um, you know buy one share class uh buy back one share class over the other in order to sort of reduce that arb and you you 're seeing that with sort of discovery, which was uh one of the companies that was marginally hit last week by uh you know, uh, by, by the Reddit threads and you effectively had the company come in and buy the share class that, you know, wasn't squeezed up. Um, and that helped to collapse the discount between the two, um, you know, another type of stub trades, when you have one company that owns a stake in another publicly traded company, uh, and you short one in, you know, direct proportion to its ownership stake, uh, in the other, and you effectively isolate the, um, you know, the business on the long side, um, that, uh, you know, th- that you're buying while you're shorting out their interest in sort of the other piece. Again, I'm happy to go into any of these in more detail if it's of interest. And then there's really alpha shorts. And I think the reason I'm ending here on alpha shorts is because this is what we, uh, focus on, uh, through ARS. And, you know, we think that this is sort of the best way to, um, ensure our portfolios. And this is the best way for us to look for businesses, you know, the singles and doubles that we think, um, are structurally flawed businesses. So, you know, we were shorting GoPro and uh, Fitbit out of the IPO gates when we saw a lot more competition coming in from Chinese competitors. And, you know, we think that the value of sort of these alpha shorts is that, you know, it. Gives us the opportunity to um, buy portfolio insurance on on our overall portfolio, and I'll get into that uh, in a little bit more detail in the next slide. But you know, putting it all together, as Stephen mentioned before, what do shorts do, and you know, why do people short? We think there's value for the market in terms of sort of the ability to uncover fraud and point regulators to fraud, um, to provide better market price discovery, you know, liquidity, and more than anything else, as Stephen said, the markets are sort of a means to provide capital to more efficient places. And we think, you know, shorting and um, identifying especially these alpha shorts in terms of the flawed businesses uh, and putting, you know, causing those businesses to potentially go down and having some pressure in those businesses is really what allows capital to more effectively flow into, you know, the most productive means. Um but just focusing on the next slide on us and how we use shorting, so you know as stephen mentioned uh the long short fund within a r s we uh you know we alpha short and so we look for. Basically businesses undergoing these negative structural issues. And so we really segment that into two categories. You know, the first is what we call first mover degraders. And so that's, you know, again, it goes back to sort of the Fitbit and GoPro example where we're looking for the single business, single product businesses that we think was sort of that innovator. And it's undergoing that innovator's dilemma now where, you know, you have better capitalized competitors that are, um, stepping in and offering better products, you know, products with better distribution uh, and usually are lower in the cost curve. So they're undercutting on pricing. And often what happens in these uh, innovator dilemmas is that, you know, you have a very high multiple on these particular stocks just because they have been growing fast and, um, you know, they are the leader in their space. But we, you know, we're looking to identify the businesses where, you know, we think that's changing um, and the market hasn't really realized that. And then in the sec- second second, uh, Second you know bucket for us on the on the opposite short side is really what we call kind of the short tails wagging the big dog, so that's essentially um businesses where we think the um, the tail of the cash flows is a lot shorter than the market expects. And so you often have secular, and I think this is one of the most interesting places to look for investments overall is that, you know, and I think GameStop Stop is a very good example of that where you had, Stephen and I have talked a lot about this, but you have very smart investors on both sides. You know, you had the Michael, you know, Michael Burry and and all and their sort of longer term investors looking at the GameStop business and saying, well, we think that the cash flow tail is a lot longer with this used games business, than the market realizes, and then you had sort of the Melvins of the world thinking the company would file uh, in the near in the, you know, the near future, and so we're really looking for those situations where we think that you know cash flow tails are a lot shorter than the market realizes. We were never really involved in GameStop particularly, but. Um, You know, I think it does fit into sort of that second category, assuming you believe that on the the, the shorter tails. To Stephen's point earlier, you know, risk management is so important on the short side. And how do we uh how do we think about risk management we really think about it in position sizing so you know for us i think that the the issue you have in shorts is sometimes you know they can get away from you before the thesis is really worked out and i think that's because a lot of these alpha shorts tend to be you know small dicier businesses and so i think our thought process on that front is we really risk manage through position sizing and so you know if we're shorting excuse me, 30 to 50 to 100 basis points of our portfolio. Um, If a stock doubles on us while we're waiting for the short thesis to play out, um, you know, we can really withstand that volatility and hold through the ups and downs. Uh, and, you know, uh, we've, we've kind of seen a lot of those examples. Some have worked, some have not worked. But, um, we just think that, uh, yeah, if it hasn't, if it doesn't work and you kind of get that sort of a drawdown where you think the thesis is changing and you need to move on, at least if you're, you know, shorting it in small, shorting the name in small size, you can sort of cover and move on. Um, uh, you know, in a situation where you're potentially going to lose money and, and and your thesis has really changed. Um, the other thing I think that's really important is focusing on the metrics that Wall Street focuses on rather than simply valuation. I think it's sort of a misnomer in the market that, you know, you go long low valuation stocks, short high valuation stocks. And I think the reason why this is so important is especially right now when you have all this capital flowing through, Stimulus into the market. It's really hard to just short on valuation because you know if you were short sort of alternative energy or EV stocks, yeah, uh, you know, some some of these valuations and some of the direction the the company the companies are going um, are they're sort of in you know very different spots. And I think uh, what we have to do and what we're focused on is really those metrics that Wall Street follows. And so you know we're short certain businesses that have gotten sort of a one-time benefit from COVID and. Regardless of the valuation, uh, you know, we think that in the next two years as you know that the world reopens and um you know some of these businesses see subscriber shortfalls or you know they see sort of a, a some of the e-commerce distribution businesses see a reversion back to people sort of buying in stores um we think that, uh, that 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 following those metrics which which has caused the stocks to 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 go up in 2020 and early 2021 will sort of reverse themselves uh, over the next few years um and you even see this with something like Tesla, where the metric that people have really been focusing on has been the, um, you know, the, the volume growth and sort of hitting the, the the targets on the number of cars that they produce a quarter or a year. And so if you shorted just on the valuation, you know, you really would have been in a lot of trouble because they keep on beating, um, you know, the, the, those metrics. Um Finally, the last thing we like to really look at and we think is just so important is following insider selling. And so, you know, when insiders are really dumping, aggressively dumping their stock, that usually means something to us. So, again, it's it's sort of a mosaic of all of these things, putting them all together, um, you know, risk managing appropriately, figuring out timing. And, you know, we think that, again, this provides us an insurance policy. So the last thing that I'll leave you all with is that – um You know, when we've talked to to, to school endowments and pension funds and school endowments, especially uh, in 2020, when they were talking to us about their liability side and, you know, where they had to, you know, they weren't furloughing employees and, um, you know, they had to they had to return uh you know, spring 2020 room and board to students or refund that to students. They had a lot of liabilities. And when they see, you know, 30, 40% drawdowns in their equity portfolios, like they saw, you know, through March of 2020, uh, it's, it's really hard for organizations like that. Same thing with pension funds, same thing with, you know, family offices that have, um, you know, have to sort of distribute cash to, to, um, you know errors of, 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 of we were talking to a family office about a year ago, same thing where they you know when the market was drawing up and down um you know they were getting sort of nervous or i rate phone calls from some of the family members because you know they really needed to continue distribution so we look at it as portfolio insurance right where you know, we are hopefully not losing a lot of money on the shorts and the up years if we're shorting properly based on, you know, these metrics I've laid out, we've laid out here on the slide. Um, And what we think is that that portfolio insurance, hopefully, again, in those up markets, uh, we don't pay a very big premium for it. But in the down markets, uh, it really helps us to cushion the losses from the longs. And I think that's what's valuable, again, to some of these LPs that have short-term liabilities. Uh and you know they can't withstand you know 60% drawdowns when they have to sort of pay out um you know a portion of of you know their capital pool every year um so again that's kind of generally how we look at shorting um and we really do think it plays a uh, a valuable um sort of part of of uh, an investment portfolio
2: thanks so- and and uh, jim that was for you to uh give you a better answer than I gave you last week. So, I appreciate
6: it. at any point when I'm allowed to ask questions, I will, but uh I'll I'll, I'll reserve till for now.
2: We're there now. So, uh market's open for questions and Jim, if you have the first one, go right ahead.
6: No, so and and thank you very much uh Nitin. I appreciate that and 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 for sure. I mean, I I I totally appreciate the value of a short from a hedged perspective, from ARB perspective from an insurance perspective, right? I mean, no, no, no question, it's value to an investor. But I, I, I think my, my question um, last week, and, and still this week, is what is its, how do you draw a line between shorting and aiding the economy? Uh, and, and I don't think you do. I mean, it's not saying that it doesn't have value for the investor. Uh, you know, my capital markets professor <clears throat> at Harvard is a phenomenal guy and became vice chairman of the, uh, of the Fed, uh, after we left. But, uh, you know, um, and, and so, I, you know, I studied at his church for two years and, uh, and, 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 and I agree with it. That, that being said, you know, it's like, for instance, Stephen, um, you talked about, um, shorts and, 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 and uh, your slide five functions of capital markets. Um, but prior to that, you also said that the average hold of a stock today is 12 seconds or something like that. high-frequency
2: traders. High,
6: yep. high frequency. So I don't, I don't really draw a line, right, between the capital markets being dominated by high-frequency traders with, with, with you know, uh, minimal sh- uh, hold periods and the contribution to the um, economic growth. You know, back 8.6 years, hold time. People bought AT&T. They provided capital to AT&T. You know, they, they, they 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 um invested, kind of, if you will, in the company. You know, uh, you know, when, when you have a 12 second hold time, I think that may be shorter than playing the roulette wheel in Vegas, right? Um, and so you know, is it, it, it? You know, again, it's not it's not looking to cast dispersions on the value of shorting from an investment vehicle. Um, or high frequency trading from the ability to make money as an investor. My question was, you know, I don't think you can draw a straight line saying, you know, this aids and helps and is part of the economic growth.
2: Well, I would, I would actually take a different view on that, Jim, and, and that all those transactions make a market and you look at our economy and our economy has grown quite well. Does, does all the way people invest Help that growth. The answer is obvious. Clearly not. Um, because if you're destroying capital along the way, you're not helping. Uh, so, but I do think that the, the market evolves. The market evolves to the technology that's out there, which is why high frequency traders trade the way they do is because they can steal basis points from the market. I agree with you. That doesn't help the economy, but it does provide liquidity into the system, which actually does help the economy. So I think when we look at it, we don't try and isolate good or bad. We just say it is. And how do you invest in the market based on what it is? And we leave it to the regulators and the rest of the world to uh, government to try and figure out who's good and who's bad actors in that process. But we think the way the system works and the way shorting can be used appropriately actually does aid, aid the system and for the reasons Nitin mentioned. And uh, But I do think that um, shorting in a highly leveraged position where you uh, have Greater than one hundred percent risk of loss—that probably isn't helping too many people, uh, so, except the guys on the other side.
6: Yeah, in I'm not. Choice. I'm not quarreling with you uh, on that. However, I would say that the market growth has been greatly aided by MMT and uh, and, and Fed funds rates. Um, and with so, no question.
2: in the yeah. recent in recent year in the last decade, for sure, you can go back to two thousand for the rates.
6: Yeah, and, and so. Uh, but you know, as we all know and we all understand, our capital markets, um, you know, that all plays into each other for sure. But you know, it's not it's not a single point to look at. I mean, it's a it's yeah. a kaleidoscope. Yeah, I think the issue, one of the issues that was
2: lost in the discussion last week is, and probably mainly by me, um, was when you asked the question, "Well, the guys at Mellon got it wrong. The guys at Melvin got it wrong." Um, you know, we're in the mistake business. Right. And if you're an invest if you're investing, you're in the mistake business and your goal is to minimize the mistakes and and downside risk them appropriately. And we think shorting does play a role in that, as And just described a, a thoughtful way to do it. Um Greg mentioned this last week. Uh there are a lot of different ways that people are using shorts that are not negative for the economic growth. Um they're actually very appropriate for uh helping pensions and and others um deal with their issues as they navigate a long-lived investment strategy. So that's I think was a little bit lost in the casino versus stick and sticking it to Wall Street versus who really suffers. Um I think one of the great injustices of what's gone in the last couple of weeks is that the hedge funds uh investors in them you might take some money from Melvin and their assets are down 50% from 13 billion. So that's a there's you know, a lot of money, not all that was Melvin's that was lost and its teachers, its uh, police and firemen, its uh, endowments and foundations and the like that are all are suffering from those losses. He made a mistake. Um, but I think when we look at it, we think short play an important role um, to help manage the process of getting where you want to get to uh, for investors. So That's- it's a tool in the toolbox
6: in our view. Yeah, no. And as I said, you know, shorting is an insurance policy. It provides you a hedge. You know, you can do lots of creative uh, things with you know, with shorts and longs, and and build in build in uh, expected profits uh, and downside protection. No, no question about it. I'm not quarreling with that at all. Well, let's let's. I buy. would just
5: add very quickly. I would just add one last thing: is that. Uh, Look, I mean, when you insure your house, right, what is is that providing economic productivity? Yes, it is, because it allows you to you know, plan better and avoid catastrophic loss. So you can sort of look at shorting as the same thing where it's that insurance policy that provides, you know, um, you know, uh, some sort of a support against a catastrophic loss in a portfolio.
1: Well, I, if I can add one more thing, it's Duncan. You know, if you go there's some real life examples of where, you know, this this view against shorting hasn't benefited uh, the The companies themselves during the financial crisis, one of the things the Europeans tried to do is they tried to legislate against the shorts on the bank stocks there, and really, all that did in the end is have them continue to hide the bad loans on their books and not correct their bad, their poor practices and look ten years later where we are you know the u s banks have recovered really well they made a lot of hard decisions, and the European banks didn't and their their defense was to try to stop the shorting they were they were trying to stop behavior instead of solving their own problems. I just offer that up as an example going back to a previous crisis. Sure. That I think it's interesting.
7: Right. I can add a few things to maybe, maybe technical details unless everybody is and wants to go along.
0: Well, Simon, uh, your, your camera is on. I'm not sure
7: what it's on. Your hand? My camera is on me, but I'm not sure who I am. <laughs> So I'm off. So I will add a few technical details in uh, both, uh, which will benefit uh, both arguments. So historically, there is a very talented chart, which basically shows the growth of GDP, global GDP, uh, before and after invention of capital markets in uh, effectively initially Netherlands and then in England. So uh, you can see this huge hockey stick, as we call it now, taking off right around that time. And that's so you can clearly see the importance of capital markets to uh, the capitalist economy. Now, when it comes to shorting, what we're discussing uh, are very different things dependent on uh, the period, because just as in everything else, there were different vogues and uh, different um, uh, value to the economy. So I will start with just um, uh, mentioning the fact which all of you know that the whole idea of hedge fund uh, comes from this alpha uh, hedge and alpha shorting where uh, a fund manager would take a big position in a stack uh, he or she favored and uh, short the position. Uh, which uh, he or she didn't like. And that's how Soros, who was one of the pioneers in the field, uh, started making money and still makes money. So that's something which really crystallizes the economy. But then you immediately gap to what we have today, and um, you realize that according to many calculations, the fundamental principles which are underlying the idea of um, alpha hedging uh, and alpha shorting, uh, the fundamentals, uh, lead to uh, basically lead in 8% of the cases. 8%. The rest of it is technical factors. So that kind of reduces the long-term value of any capital tool, capital markets tool, which we developed over the years. And then, uh, you, uh, one asks the question, why? And that's something which is very interesting in this situation. And uh, please, uh, and I stand corrected. Uh, please correct me. I'm just giving a little bit different framework. So the way it works is the following. The guys who, uh, the, the um, uh, Robin Hood uh, crowd, or rather Robin Hood itself, uh, makes money by providing uh, free access to the markets to retail, but they charge high-frequency traders, which basically means that the high-frequency traders, those very guys who keep the position uh, milliseconds, um, they uh, basically benefit from arbitraging the orders of real-time people with systems. And this is a huge industry. But then when the, uh, these guys have uh, their system, uh, systems um, in, a, in, a, in not only in execution but also in a projection mode. And in projection mode, somebody who can um, make an operation in, in uh, one millisecond, which is one hundred thousandths of uh, a second, uh, will arbitrage somebody who uh, has a slow latency and makes a projection, uh, makes execution in one millisecond, which is one ten thousandths of a second, so ten times uh, slower. And they do it using technical analysis. So effectively, what I'm saying is the following. When the market is in the range, all the high frequency trader uh, system does, trading system does, it arbitrages uh, the spread. The retail pays a little bit wider spread and they collect a little bit shorter spread and on those uh, tiny pennies, they make billions of dollars. But when they start seeing that the market is trending, they jump on, uh, on uh, the bandwagon band and uh, they start increasing the position and uh, shorten uh, selling the stock or basically covering their positions later, uh, depending on their view on the trend. And then there is a second group of people who picks up the signals of the trend. These are already arbitrage traders. And, uh, and I'm talking about quantitative arbitrage. Many of them have systems which are attuned to technical signals Uh, for those of you who are not in financial industry, technical signal is nothing but um, a movement uh, as reflected on the chart. So you see something is going up and the system says, or this is a trend. If you buy now, the trend will continue. It will go up and that's it. There's no uh, real fundamental understanding except for uh, sensing the momentum. So these guys also have trillions of dollars. So when the first group of people stops, the second group of people jumps in, and you saw the crashes which were created when uh, the stock market, I think, in 2012 collapsed uh, 7% because of this uh, arbitrage guys. No no fundamentals. So that's where the problem is with the value to the economy. These guys do nothing, but they react to the trend, and they amplify it. Thank you.
8: So the the, the just just to build on on the very solid foundations of, of what Stephen laid out and, and what Simon said, right? So I, I would add to Stephen's first slide is, is is the fact of let's not lose from sight why we invest, right? Economic entities are, are out there to match assets and liabilities, um, and and that is the basis of of why we invest, right? There, there's future set of liabilities that you have to meet, and you have to figure out how you will meet those with the group of assets. That you have today, how will how those will compound? Whether you're a business, whether, whatever you are. Second is for those of us who, who learned uh, about finance in the analog age, you know, learned that the foundation was there's three classes, right? There's investors, there's hedgers, and there's scalpers. And and it's, it's it, that's exactly what Simon just said, and what builds on what Stephen just said. Essentially, the the times have adapted. The digital age have brought us high frequency tra- traders, but they're, they're still scalpers. That's what they are. They they operate for a certain reason that has nothing absolutely to do with fundamentals and everything to do with very slight deviations from from prices uh, in in two different venues, perhaps right. And then you arbitrage that. And in arbitrage has always been the ability to make a sure profit, right? Um, if you're taking risk, then you're not generally not doing arbitrage. Then you have risk arbitrage, which is essentially quantifying probabilities of something that will happen or not, but. I mean, it, we're, we're essentially doing the same thing. We're doing it at a much faster pace than we used to do it before be, be, because of the digital age. Uh,
0: other, other thoughts, perspectives, questions?
9: Uh, hi, this is Steve Traykov. Uh, can you hear me?
0: Yep. I
9: see. Uh, I've got a question for Nitin and Stephen. Um, it's been my experience in looking at private equity funding um, management groups that a management group will actually go through 20 or 30 potential projects before it decides on one. I would just want to take that analogy to how do you identify shorts? How many do you throw away into the wastebasket or do you continue to monitor? Is it a ratio of 1 to 20, 1 to 5, 1 to 100? And second question is mode of entry. How do you decide on that? We've talked about technical analysis here, but uh, I'd just like to hear more.
2: And Nitin will answer that. Okay, um,
5: Yeah. yes, <laughs> so. I these so. Easy questions.
2: He gets the hard one. <laughs>
5: I think we're uh we're always looking for interesting shorts. And the you know, the nice thing is we have such a large team at so a- ARS a- that, you know, even during this call, I think three ideas were sort of bounced off one another. We we bounced off each other over uh over teams. So I think that's one way is we're all just sort of reading, we're all thinking about the market, we're all thinking about how it's moving based on the outlook and deciding accordingly and that, you know, sometimes interesting businesses kind of pop up as shorts. Uh you know, we do we, we screen. Um, and so, you know, one of the most interesting screens that we run on the short side is a screen where we look for insiders selling after a 20 percent plus move down in a stock because, you know, based on, you know, some sort of news, because, you know, we know that if insiders are still selling after a drop, that means you know, it sort of fits the cockroach theory where, you know, that's, that's, that's sort of the first step on a long way down. Um, you know, we, we also just do general insider selling screens. We do, you know, valuation screens with some sort of working capital nuances to it. Um, you know, we, you know, there were probably three or four other great short sellers that, you know, I speak to pretty regularly and we all kind of scale our research amongst one another. Uh, you yeah, so I would say to, to, to actually answer your, your question with, with, um, you know, numbers, uh, we probably look at 30 shorts plus for everyone we put on. And I think the, uh, if you, if, if you haven't read this book, Diamines, I think it's one of the most interesting books I've ever read. But well, one of the things that they talk about is how. Um, you know, business leaders tend to be able to look mile wide, inch deep and canvas uh, a lot of different opportunities. And when something looks really interesting, that's when they go mile deep and kind of and I think that's something that we try to do, too, is we try to get a high return on our time by just, you know, canvassing um, a lot of different opportunities. And when something sort of hits again um, some of that criteria, Stephen and I laid out, that's when we really go deep. And then that's when we do the real research and, you know, talk to industry folks, uh, in, you know, a normal environment, go to industry trade shows and, and walk the floors. Um, because I think you get kind of a lot of scuttlebutt when you do exactly that and you just hear what sales guys think about different businesses, um, uh, without sort of a, a, um, uh, without any sort of, um, kind of CEO who, who giving you the company line. And so, you know, there's just a lot of ways we do it, but I think, uh, that the, the key is we really have a deep funnel and then we go deep, uh, when we think something looks super interesting.
2: And I would just add we, we start our investment process looking at the macro and figuring out where capital is going to flow and who it's going to flow away from. And theoretically, who it flows away from should be the start of a view on where you might want to short. Um, The problem with shorting, as the guys who do it well know, is um, you could have the right thesis and the market doesn't allow the thesis to play out. Um, And uh, so just getting the uh, area right that it could be under pressure doesn't give you the results that you're looking for. So I think you really have to break a lot of eggs uh, along the way. And you have to be really comfortable in who you are as a manager, Um, knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are allows you to not get sucked into the problems that um, that where you get on the wrong side of a trade or you can't get out. And uh, sizing for us is really important. We spend a lot of time talking about the sizing the probabilities of being wrong. And I think that's the key. And too often you fall in love with stuff. When it starts working, you don't realize you're, you are the guy who has the weak hand. Um, and I think that's really important for us to make sure we get
5: those elements right.
9: How quickly do you exit a position on a short?
5: Um, I mean, it really depends on the time horizon of the idea and how long it takes to play out. I mean, there are certain names where it's taken a good three years to play out and we've been shorted for, you know, that period of time. There are other names where they play out within six months. You know, there, we've, we've obviously had losses and we've obviously had a couple takeouts happen. Um, you know, we've had names where the thesis changed and, uh, we covered the short and moved on. Um, so it's really just a function. Again, it's just looking at the individual businesses, looking at the thesis, you know, you know, putting our judgment into play. And I think the nice thing uh, that we have, again, at ARS is, is is even as obviously, you know, built and run businesses, Sean has um, sort of seen things from the side of the alligator who's looking at a lot of different uh, managers and how they invest. And so I think that's really helpful for us in terms of just the judgment call and knowing whether or not a business, uh, you know, the thesis is playing out or not. Um, so, yeah. So, it, it, again, really just it's all individual company specific. We, we wish we knew.
8: Didn't we, didn't just, back.
2: We, <laughs> we wish we knew going in how long we would be short, <laughs> you know, um, make everything no. a
9: lot easier, right, Greg? But getting back to what Stephen said here, it sounds like you've got two approaches here, something very idiosyncratic to the company, but also to which way the economic macro situation, which way those winds are blowing. Uh, and you weigh both of them. Uh, have you ever identified a good short in which the winds just basically said, don't do this?
1: That's yeah. a good question.
5: Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think sometimes you get into a situation. So we were short this company InventSense. And so they made gyroscopes in the iPhones. So basically, it was sort of in the accelerometer. So it's basically the device that allows you to to, to the phone to figure out if you're going uh, if you're in portrait or landscape mode, and then it switches the screen. And, you know, the the common wisdom amongst the sell side was that they were going to get Apple, there was going to be a lot of growth in gyroscopes in um, emerging market cell phones. So, you know, the, the common wisdom Wisdom was telling you that this was a big growth market. Attach rates were going from 20% to 45% uh, in phones, and they were just going to keep growing. And the stock was trading at 40 times earnings on that. This was actually the first chapter in the in the, in the book uh, in terms of the case studies. But um, but basically, the, the, what what we uncovered in the research was that InventSense was not the only um, company doing this. They were at the time, uh, and they got popular because. Uh, they started being used in Android phones. Samsung started using them. Um, but then two things ha- happened. One, you had, uh, STM, which was a better capitalized competitor. And you had, that already had sort of, uh, design wins into cell phones. And then you had Bosch doing the same thing. And so when Bosch and STM sort of came on the scene, uh, they basically just sold this product of, as a suite of many other semiconductor components into the phone. And so that just, just destroyed pricing. Um, and then what ended up happening was they, they, they did win Apple, since um, won Apple, but they won Apple at sort of a very low price because Apple was really aggressive with them on, you know, the negotiation. And so their gross margins just got crushed. So when you had, even though you still had unit volume growth, um, uh, when your ASPs decline and your gross margins get crushed, you know, it, they stopped making any money and the stock blew up. Um, so yeah, you definitely have examples where you're sort of going against common wisdom. Um, but I think to Stephen's point, the, 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 the the real value for us is, you know, the macro and sort of thinking about capital flows. So, you know, in an example like that, you really have to get the actual individual company specific thesis, right. And, you know, in, in those situations, again, we were playing, um, the, the semiconductor space in different ways uh, that we thought were benefiting. And then we were shorting against it in a name like this, which we thought was going to lose. So, you know, that outlook was kind of playing into both sides of, um, of what we were doing, if that makes sense.
9: Greg, Very good. A, Thank
8: you. You're You, um, your, uh, you That was in a your great time. example of a bottom-up selection of, of a short, um, you know, so we we're my, my fund's focus is on emerging markets. Um, Where there's now you know a lot of popularity and and, and people allocating money and a lot of that money is coming through passive flows and the passive flows just takes everything up, no matter how bad the business is. And so the, the the indices are created with a backward bias, meaning if you reach a certain market capitalization or or some other metric, you're in the index, and then that just gets you the passive money, which means that if you have a if you have a fundamental case against a business that figures prominently in an index. You in an index that's for some reason is popular. You're going to be facing all those capital flows against your short positioning, uh, unless until the market uh, figures out the the fundamentals and and fundamental investors can short that in a proportion that's bigger to the passive inflows that are coming in. Now, of course, when the macro tide changes and something falls out of favor and the whole index goes out of favor, then you're going to see, you know, a lot of rewards coming back to you in, in that short, but the timing of that is, is very, very Essential Greg just
2: brought up a great point <clears throat> how the advent of new products like sector ETFs or subsector ETFs or industry ETFs mm-hmm. can put you in a spot where um, the company you hate uh, from a from a long term from a long um, doesn't become a good short because the rest of the sector blows up even though this is the worst company in it. If they're in the index, they'll get carried along and you could they could get carried along a lot longer than you want to stay with your short. So it really creates uh, a need for, as Ben Graham said, to keep adapting your process to the current environment because 20 years ago when, you know, Soros, 30 years ago when Soros and that small crowd of hedges were doing what they were doing, there weren't a lot of people that they were competing against for the ideas. And so you have different, very different dynamics today that you actually have to factor into it. So I would argue that Soros wouldn't have had the success he had back then. Uh, today he would have been a great investor. He is a great investor, but could he have put those same types of returns up in this environment is a little harder to determine given how Complicated
0: the markets are now. Other voices, viewpoints.
2: We'll have a new topic for next week, Mark. I I'm already working on that one.
6: I I guess my 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 last maybe question to Stephen or Nitin is. Uh, do you see anything changing uh, with regulations or um, it's just a a lot of conversations like the one we're having today, but things will go back to um, whatever normal is. I
2: believe, uh, I believe nothing goes back uh, in the wall street. Uh, I think the way, uh, the way every industry is evolving wall streets in the same boat. Um, So I think it'll be moving forward. I think we'll be, you know the post pandemic world for every everyone will be different than the pre pandemic i don't think you go back i think you go back to what's different um and uh, i suspect there will be a lot of negative fallout from the robin hood trading that occurred the last uh, week or two you're already starting to see the class action lawsuits janet yellen is uh talking about looking at the impact of this so I don't think this is going to end uh soon or easily for a lot of people. And I think that's going to lead to different regulatory oversight for the Robin Hoods of the world and different capital requirements. Um uh, I think there'll be a lot of lawsuits and uh people will be punished for this. So I think you'll have a, a I think Greg brought this up last, last week where, um, after the financial crisis, you had Reg FD or uh, earlier crisis, you had Reg FD. And then you had at the financial crisis, uh, you know, Dodd-Frank and, and uh, Volcker rules. I think you'll see different rules coming in to try and protect people, whether they actually do or not. We'll know after the fact. I suspect there'll be unintended consequences from the enhancements that we make to the system.
10: Stephen, no? um, I just love your presentations <laughs> every week is just an unbelievable lesson in life. Um, can you, you potentially next week talk about the stock market versus the real economy? Like it, it strikes me as the stock market has nothing to do with the real economy. And I'm just wondering if you agree, disagree, and if you could actually kind of compare the two. Uh, does that make sense? Like I know uh, what I'm I, actually, about.
2: I, I do. It makes a ton of sense um, to me, but um, and Simon, if he's still on, can tell you that what we've had is a is a manufactured uh economy uh, that has been driven towards since the financial crisis, increasing asset values to deal with debt. And and that's the that's what the Fed doesn't really come out and say. But everything they've done since 08 has been to increase va- asset values so we have enough assets to deal with the debt problem globally. Um, so it's no surprise that when they're targeting low interest rates you're, and giving you fewer choices of where to put capital, that the market does have to have to move up. Not just the stock market. Look at real estate. Um, until the commercial real estate pullback last year, that was on the same trajectory. Any asset was being really pushed up in a material way. So we understand why it is. it is. Its policy is driving it up. And it's the same policy, which is ironic, that um, is now being talked about of creating inequality. Well, they knew 10 years ago when they were lowering interest rates and favoring asset that they were going to favor the wealthy because the poor didn't have the assets. They didn't have homes. They they didn't own their homes. They were highly indebted. But it was to buy time for the economy.
7: And Uh, just to add to this, uh, just since we're talking about social equality, they also knew that they will destroy all pension funds, which are, fixed income driven and they knew that the interest on these funds will go to zero eventually.
3: Save and they the
10: still too. Right. What what's gonna be the practical outcome? Like where are the opportunities? Like if you if you were living living in nineteen twenty nine and you knew what was going to happen over the next ten years, you had unbelievable opportunities to make wealth. I mean there's some some of the greatest wealth was created in the early nineteen thirties, right? Um so it seems to me, you know, you you'd mentioned that, you know, we're living in a very unusual time, a very disruptive time, so many things happening. Um, you know, everybody kind of knows that Chinese um, thing with, you know, you should live in these kinds of times because these are when the greatest opportunities exist. So it strikes me that now, I sort of ignoring the stock market, because I'm not a stock market guy, obviously, but, you know, it seems to me there's a tremendous amount of opportunity to create real wealth, generational wealth at this point. And it's just going to explode Let's, the next 18 months.
2: Without question, uh, and for, for, our, for our take on it at ARS, we can't speak for, the, for others, but for our take, you want to you have a longer-term time horizon to focus on the beneficiaries of this transformation that's going on. And, you know, the digitalization of the, of the economy is going to continue. It's going to wipe out industries, and it's going to create new ones. Um, so I think you really want to follow – the, the pol- monetary policy, you want to follow fiscal policy. It is, it's insane. But if you step back, we had a 3% drop in GDP last year, roughly in the US. We've put between monetary and fiscal stimulus prior to this l- latest 1.9 trillion or whatever is being talked about, 44% of GDP to the problem for a 3% decline in GDP. So there are mismatches that occur. You have to identify the mismatches. And for us, it's really focusing on the big secular trends is if you want to have a generational opportunity to make capital for our style of investing, that's the way to do it. And we think about all these overnight successes, whether it's Zuckerberg or go through any of the greats, you know, they're not overnight successes. They toiled in obscurity for a while, and then all of a sudden things took off 10 years later. So we think that, that you really want to focus on the long term to build wealth, regardless of of what what you pick. Real estate's hard to make money in the short term, right? It's really hard to trade real estate. It's not liquid enough. But in the markets you can make money if you step back and think we're owning businesses. Right? That's the business business ownership's the way all wealth has been created. Whether it's ownership of real estate businesses, ownership of equities, that's where the capital has been really accumulated. So it always goes back to that for us. And then finding the themes that, you, that will be long-lived and being able to recognize the change that's coming. I think the big issue and the hardest thing for investors is going to be whether the policies that we go too far in putting too much stimulus into the system and we lose complete control by governments. And that's where the fear in the back of our mind is for the wipeout. Uh, but realistically, you have smart people running these things. I think the most interesting thing, and it gets to one of the areas I want to talk about is Janet Yellen and Summers being on the opposite sides of the debate on stimulus right now, which to think that, um, that he would be, uh, that Larry Summers would be more aligned with, uh, a lot of the GOP right now on the stimulus debate than he would be with the Biden administration to me is fascinating. And it just shows you how really smart people and, you know, Janet Yellen and Summers would be up in that camp of the really smart people understanding how the economies work and have such different views on inflation to me is uh, fascinating. And that's really, again, what makes a market when you have those divergent views. So for us, it's be, be a longer term investor and focus a little bit beyond the short term stuff because there's so much noise. Not that money can't be made there, but it's hard to make money in the short term against the guys you're going up against in that space with their technology.
6: Stephen, you just said something uh, really interesting. You said since 2008, the motivation of the Fed has been to inflate asset value you know, kind of ab- above and beyond the amount of debt we're lay- lay- layering on the economy. Uh, then you just said also that you know, the GDP drop of 3%, we have maybe um, overreacted with more debt and continue to, how much gas is in that tank? How much gas is required to be in that tank? Uh, uh, you know, how much do we keep the, uh, the gerbil running on the wheel here?
2: It's an interesting, uh, dis- uh question because it really gets to where are we to our potential as an economy? What's the output gap? And that Summer's case is, uh, he doesn't think the output gap is as great as Yellen probably does um, to get back to uh, fuller employment. So I think the that's going to be the the issue is how much is there? Uh, do we have how much of a gap do we have to close? Ed Yardeni was out last night saying he thinks it's uh, a fraction of even the new stimulus. He thinks that what we have in the system is going to take the gap from 50 million a month down to uh, 20 or 30 million mark. I forget the exact number. Um, so if he's right, then we're doing way too much and you'll start to see inflation and the bond vigilantes will come in. If Yellen's right, then you'll see this be able to go on for a lot longer. Um, and I suspect they're not going to do 1.9. I, I was previously in the, uh, 900, uh, billion range. I think you have to move it up from there, but I don't think it moves back up to the 1.9, but it's a, it's a, it's hard to fathom the amount of money we've thrown at this. So uh, it'll be, it'll be trickier moving forward. That's for sure. Uh, Steven,
10: <laughs> um, is, infl- I, I, this is a really big question, but probably more for next week is inflation really going to be a bad thing for most people. I, I'm not talking about people who are big investors who are very wealthy, but the average, the average person is in at, at, at this point in time, is inflation such a bad thing?
2: It depends on the rate of change in our view. Having inflation is is a good thing when you're running its you know subpar inflation levels. Um, it's a little concerning that the Fed wants to let it run hot on inflation to get to fuller employment, um, but it's an experiment that we're in. So to be clear, we're in an, in an experiment that Japan has a 20 year lead on us to see how that works out, but. Very different economy, so you can't just say well japan's experience is this, so ours will be that uh, very, but it is something that I was going to go into more next week is this output gap and the two sides of the argument on where we are because I think inflation is going to be one of the big issues of how we manage through that uh that challenge of
0: getting to a an appropriate takeoff without overstimulating and so that I mean interweaving into that is is Japan, I've since learned, is also holding most of its, its, its debt, uh, whereas we have the rest of the world in China. And if, if they, if there are other forces we don't, we won't, we don't have the benefit of controlling. Um, but I wanted to just point to your, your question, Zales, that I look at this whole community as this trying to find the collective wisdom. And obviously we have Uncle Stephen, uh, here leading us, uh, through these discussions, but I wanted to, um, also, switch gears because I'm I'm an old school. I'm sort of like, I I I I think I know where the, where the question comes from, Jim. Because Jim's trying to run a business and grow it, and I was investing in specific companies like like yours, but you're a little earlier than I would normally. But this is another thing I want. Just want to make sure that everybody. I think we can do this. Take this kind of a forum. Tom Jump has a couple water deals. Everybody's got a couple deals. I just have to go to run it through compliance. Cause that's the, I love having the macro and having that, your question, like where, where should you be investing in the public versus the private? And I think a lot of our, of this crowd is not, we're entrepreneurial and you want to flex those muscles, uh, and leverage, and leverage each other. So I think we just want to also, you know, I know what, when, if you do the private versus public things, Stephen, I don't know, or what, what do you want to do next week?
2: I was going to do a little bit about what we just talked about, um, unless something comes up between now and Sunday, Mark, when we're, when you send your email saying, what am I talking about? Which is <laughs> Saturday morning and you get it Sunday or Monday. Um, we should send that meeting that on Wednesdays now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see, but, um, I think the, uh, I think this topic of how the debate between Yellen and Summers is yeah, actually thanks. a fascinating one too spend some more time on because so much of where we go from here is dependent on it.
0: That is fascinating.
2: Because you're not just talking about the 1.9. There's infrastructure behind. So an infrastructure package behind that. So you're looking at, you know, another 3 trillion this year, uh, potentially.
0: Can we pose that that question to Powell on Thursday? Uh We'll see.
2: I don't know if he's going to answer that one. He's going to tell you he's keeping rates low. <laughs> That's what he's going to tell you. So yeah, fair enough. Well, Mark, great discussion from the group and, uh, uh, glad we can add some value. So uh, thank you. And Nitten, thanks for joining today.
0: Yeah, Nitten, well done. I, I flashed your book up, Nitten. So maybe you, you sold it. <laughs> thank times. you. Thank you for that. <laughs> I also forgot to mention he's in business insider,
2: uh, with an article about Nitten's views on, uh, can I uh, distribute
0: that? You, I'm sorry? i sorry. Can I distribute that or is there a version I could I could post that article?
2: I think so. We have to. Nitin was running it by Kristen. So we'll get back down that. Okay. OK.
0: Fair enough. Other thoughts, questions?
3: I, I was asking in chat, Stephen, the difference between social and societal. You made that distinction on your slide
2: yeah uh the social for us is the interactions between people and society is uh is the the group as a whole is the way we think about it so uh uh changes between groups of people and changes for the uh society as a
0: whole is the way we differentiate it
3: thank you.